we're wrecking the planet in a lot of different ways, but agriculture is one of our main ways of doing it. But if we do it in a correct way with regenerative organic principles, if you look at a wild ecosystem, you have no synthetic chemical inputs, no pesticides, no fertilizers. There's a sustainable balance of animal and plant life, and it's all integrated. And our farming systems need to replicate a natural ecosystem and not be dependent on synthetic chemical inputs. That's David Bronner, and this is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. This is my podcast. Welcome or welcome back. I'm joined in studio right now with my man, DK, David Kahn. How are you? Good. It's good to be here. It's been a minute since you've uh, dropped in for a little chit-chat in yeah. the intro section to the podcast. How are you feeling? I, f- I feel good. I mean, today I feel good. So just to recap for new listeners, David joined us probably six weeks ago or something like that. Maybe 10. To talk a little bit about hashtag DK goals, setting a focus and intention for 2019. I think that uh, episode... Uh, resulted in some good feedback for you, some stuff to think about. How are you doing with your goals? First, let me just say the feedback was great, and I appreciate everybody's uh, thoughtful responses. How am I doing with my goals? I feel like I started the year off pretty well, and then uh, I feel like I hit some walls. There was some rain in, in Los Angeles. I wasn't exercising. My tennis partner was in New York for two months. My diet went off the rails, and then the the inner monologue of you're not exercising enough, you're not eating well enough, you're not meditating, or you're not meditating enough. And then you just I I just hit the off switch. I'm just like I don't want to think about how my progress you is. shut down. Yeah, because I don't feel like I'm doing well. And you know, a lot of the feedback was really some of the stuff is very practical, very incremental, very useful. Just, you know, drink more water or say more kind things to yourself. Try to change, you know, make sure, make conscious decision to eat one green meal a week. Like stuff that's super achievable. And then there's like more ambitious goals. And I think taking practical steps is difficult. And I think looking at the end goal is easy for me. Oh, I'd like to run a 5K or I'd like to do anything. But Doing the work is where it gets hard. Like I walked around you in the last two days and it feels amazing, one, to be active, two, to get out of the house and not have the isolation. And I think spending a lot of time by myself, you know, working or whatever in the last couple months and not having success, right? It, it's debilitating. So you're sort of the stand-in for the everyman and the kind of typical struggles that most people, I think, face and confront when uh, when trying to tackle a wellness challenge or just try to get, like you said, incrementally a little bit better in mind, body, and spirit. And I just know for myself that the best way for me to kind of kickstart that process uh, is to set a goal. And in my case, I try to set goals that are just outside my comfort zone, things that I think are doable and achievable, but also scare me. So in my case, because I'm going to put, you know, myself in this conversation as well, uh, I've decided to, a lot of people have been asking me, like, when are you going to do another race? It's been two years since I did Otillo. So I have committed by way of 
announcing on Chris Howell, my coach's podcast, I guessed it on his episode 100 the other day, I committed to doing this event in Qatar. It's a three-day Ultraman distance event that does the distances in reverse order and circumnavigates the peninsula of Qatar. I think it's essentially the entire country. I don't know that much about it, but Chris is doing it. One of his athletes created this event and I agreed to do it. It's in November. It's been 10 years since I've done an Ultraman race. And in this case, the event begins with the double marathon on the first day. The second day is a very long bike. Wow. The third day is, I think, like a 90-mile bike followed by a 9 or 10-kilometer swim. So you finish with the swim. I've never done anything like this before. Uh, and I'm a little scared, but I'm in. And what I've noticed just in the last few days since I publicly committed to that on Chris's podcast is that it brings everything in my life into focus. Suddenly, I have to be very organized and intentional and mindful about the choices that I make, the foods that I eat, the workouts that I'm going to be doing. They all suddenly have a purpose rather than some vague notion of like, well, I just want to be fit or I want to feel better. So what I'm saying, A, in addition to you know publicly announcing that I'm going to be doing this thing, uh, is that it might behoove you to identify your version of that for yourself, whether it's a 5K or what you want the scale to say or just something that you can put out on the calendar some distance from now that you can then create a roadmap that will get you excited, that will kickstart you into some new habits and hopefully build momentum so that when you confront that morning when you wake up and you don't feel great or it's raining and the weather isn't so good and you just don't feel like doing it, uh, the momentum will help you override those speed bumps and get you on a new path. I agree. I, I do think I need to make a goal. The physical thing, I'd love to say 5K, 10K, mini, try, whatever. I just don't know physically how much my knee will hold up. I definitely can do a, a goal for the weight. I def I think 190. I went down, I was at, started at I think 213 and got to 208. Now I'm back to like 214. I think 190 seems like right. I haven't been 190, in and I can help at least you create, years. create the path to achieving that. And I think that's totally doable. Yeah, it's very doable. I think it is. And you know, we can monitor the knee and all of that, and we can we don't have to commit to anything at this moment, but maybe think about that. I feel like the weight definitely. Um, I mean, I was really conscious of it, and then I just kind of like felt lost. Honestly, I felt like oh, it's, I'm not I'm not having success. You should call me in those instances. I'm here for you, brother. I know, man, but it's just, um, you know. All right. Well, put that in the hopper to be continued. Everybody listening, uh, hit DK up on Twitter at David Darren Khan. Yeah. With R-R-E-N, hashtag DK goals, and uh, to be continued, my I friend. I appreciate all your comments, sincerely. Did I mention that today's guest is David Bronner? You know Bronner Soap, right? Yeah. So David is a super interesting, fascinating guy. He is the CEO, which stands for Cosmic Engagement Officer, which gives you an idea of the spiritual pedigree of this dude, uh, of Bronner Soap. And what's amazing about this is that a lot of us, myself included, like I love Bronner Soap. I've been a customer of their product line forever. 
if you pick up their soaps in the store, do you notice like there's these manifestos in small type on the labels? Have you noticed that? Uh, I haven't. It's kind of incredible. Next time you, you're in the store and you see their soap, pick it up and just read yeah. these words. It'll blow your mind. They're like spiritual manifestos. And that's because uh, this company was founded by David's grandfather back in 1948, this guy, Emmanuel Bronner, who was a super tripper. He was a third generation master soap maker, and he used these labels on his ecological line of soaps to really spread this message of unity across religious and ethnic divides with this kind of slogan of, we are all one or none. And it's kind of inspiring and cool. Uh, David's been on my radar for a while. He's somebody I've wanted to talk to for a long time, and he definitely does not disappoint. This is a super cool conversation. Uh, and there's a lot more I wanna say about David and the Bronner legacy. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentous's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentous for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. 
To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Okay, David Bronner. What do I want to say about this guy? Well, basically... He's like this interesting mashup of his grandfather's cosmic hippie sensibility merged with this savvy, business-minded approach to making this Bronner Soap company commercially successful. And I think it's fair to say he's a visionary. He's an environmental activist. He's a Harvard biology graduate. And he's really dedicated his life to honoring his grandfather's vision while also continuing to make socially and environmentally responsible products uh, and making it all financially successful. He partners with certified fair trade projects. Everything they produce and make is certified organic. Uh, He's also a founding partner in the Climate Collaborative, which we talk a little bit about today. He's super into animal advocacy, wage equality, and drug policy reform, all of which are subjects that we get into at length today. And I think that's all I want to say about him. Um, Final note before we get into it, David talks a lot about psychedelics and cannabis in the context of his personal spiritual growth. And as a longtime person in recovery for substance abuse, uh, I'm not endorsing this method or these behaviors, but to each his own. And I find his uh, story to be very interesting. And finally, I just want to say upfront that this is not a branded podcast. I'm not being sponsored or paid by Dr. Bronner's or David to produce this conversation. I just am a huge fan of this company and their legacy. And I followed David for quite some time, and he's a fascinating individual that I've wanted to talk to for a very long time. So without further ado, let's get far out with David Bronner. Let's do it. Yeah, it's funny. That's, you know, I had some when I was a kid, um, I had some kind of issues. I, I don't know exactly what they were, but uh-huh. my, I was in some at the two one thirty four interchange. There was like a hospital there, and I was, my mom had me in there doing intensive therapy. 
when you were a kid? Yeah, it was like dyslexia, right, left confusion, balance uh -huh. issues, different language difficulties. They couldn't figure out what it was though, or yeah, did you get diagnosed? I had some, di I don't know what the exact diagnosis was, and, uh -huh. but my brain had to learn new ways of doing certain things. Wow. And, like, well, and I still like, you know, do certain letters backward, you know, I mean, they're uh -huh. the right way. It's just, I don't, I do them the whatever way. Right, but not like textbook dyslexic. No. Yeah. But you must have been a good student, dude. You went to Harvard, so you uh, figured it out somehow. Yeah, yeah, no, I did. But I mostly read and just like was kind of learned on my own and uh -huh. could kick a football really far. I think I, soccer was my passion and then crossed over into football and got recruited into different colleges. Oh, wow. So did you, yeah. you play football at Harvard? Yeah, for two years. You did? Yeah. What, you, were, uh, you were the kicker? Yeah, I kicked from nine, well, 91 and 92 and then, but I got a little bored because uh -huh. I mean, soccer was my life. And right. I, um, my friends were playing rugby and having a lot more fun. Uh, it was it was an NCAA. Yeah. And it just kind of blended more of my skill set. Plus there was no drug testing for uh -huh. cannabis, which was an increasing, <laughs> increasingly important dimension. Problematic for you, know, you man. I'm like, dude, not yeah. another fall season, man. I have a hard time visualizing <laughs> you in a football uniform though. I wouldn't have yeah. thought that, that's yeah. wild. Yeah, no, it was, yeah. And you know, and it just got less fun, you know, uh -huh. like just the four hour practices day in, day out. I hear you, brother. Yeah. It's work, right? Yeah, yeah. And I just wanted to make sure I was playing a sport I was a lot more passionate about uh -huh. than, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed, I, I played tight end in high school, but I wasn't good enough to play at that mm -hmm. level. You're a big and, dude, right? Like, what are you, like six, six or something? Six, six five? four and a half. Six, wow, yeah, mm -hmm. you're a tall dude. Where'd you mm -hmm. go to high school? Hoover High, so uh -huh. in Glendale. Right, mm -hmm. so LA native, thanks for coming back up from yeah. Encinitas to talk to me. Been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, lots of points of interest and stuff we can explore. Um, I guess the first thing I wanna know as somebody who is at the vanguard, like the activist vanguard of everything sustainable, regenerative, eco-friendly, you know, somebody who really lives in this space, like what's top of mind for you right now? What, what do you have, you, what, do, what do you like knee deep in at the moment that's most interesting? Right on. Well, um, we, uh, we're uh, launching with partners, um, including Patagonia, the, the clothing company, uh -huh. and then um, leading animal welfare orgs like Compassionate World Farming, leading fair labor orgs like Farewell Project and leading soil health organizations like Rodale and Demeter. Yeah. And Demeter holds the biodynamic standard and Rodale's the, the heart of the organic farming movement. Um, a single standard called regenerative organic that mm -hmm. basically brings together the best of the soil health, animal welfare and fair labor into a single standard, a, a single consumer facing mm -hmm. certification standard so that when you purchase food or clothes or soap, you can know that not only was it grown in a way that respects the soil, but also all the people and the farmers and the workers involved were treated fairly and any animals or livestock involved where it was a pasture-based system, uh, no confined, like the high, like a, like a whole other level of animal welfare criteria right. than the current organic standard. Right, like this high watermark that takes into consideration labor conditions, uh, the way the soil is treated. And, uh, and on top of that, how, the long the long term sustainability prospects of the manner in which the product, whether it be food or soap or what have you, is harvested. Yeah, totally. And in uh -huh. this, you know, we feel is like we like 
one third of their surface has basically been terraformed under uh, industrial agricultural mismanagement. Mm-hmm. We, we're, we're wrecking the planet in a lot of different ways, but agriculture is one of our main ways of doing it. And but if we do it in a in a in a correct way with regenerative organic princ- principles, if you look at a wild ecosystem, you have no no synthetic chemical inputs, no pesticides, right. no fertilizers. There's a sustainable balance of animal and plant life, um, and it's all integrated. And our farming systems need to replicate a natural ecosystem and not be dependent on synthetic chemical inputs. Which, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, soil health is 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 really you know the essential ingredient in <laughs> you know the the long term viability of our species and and many animal species. It's a subject that's come up uh, on this podcast many times. Most recently with Dr. Zach Bush. Do you know Do you know Zach at all? Uh, maybe. If you guys don't, you definitely okay, should cool. know each other because mm-hmm. you're on the same wavelength here. Um, but I think it would be informative for people that that. Perhaps you know aren't as steeped in this as you are to understand the difference between organic and regenerative, and on top of that, kind of what's like canvas what's going on in this world of labeling that I think is creating as much confusion as yeah. it is clarity. Right on. Well, um, I, I mean, so what's the the default right now? Conventional industrial agriculture is it's it's basically chemical agriculture, gen, um, mostly genetically engineered commodity crops like soy and corn mm-hmm. that are grown for our, for feed. Like uh, one over one half of, of American agriculture now is devoted to feed crops um, that are inefficiently converted into animal uh, animal uh, energy, carbohydrates, and, and protein. Um, and these animals are in conf- confined animal mm-hmm. factory. CAFOs. CAFOs and um, so it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a horrendous uh, situation from an animal welfare perspective. And then, but from an environmental perspective, taking the, the animals off the land and putting them in boxes um, and then growing the feed crops where they were so that their fertility is not integrated into the cropping cycle. They're mm-hmm. instead you have these huge manure lagoons that are spewing methane into the air. Um, we're, we're instead, Bringing these crops to harvest with with more and more synthetic nitrogen and other fertilizers, and synthetic nitrogen is made in the Haber Bosch process. It's one of the most energy intensive reactions that we do on the planet. It consumes one to three percent of the world's energy uh, to make synthetic nitrogen, mm-hmm. and then it destroys the soil biota, the natural life in soil. Soil is a living organism. It's a living ecosystem, and um, we're basically systematically destroying the life in that soil um, and bringing our crops to harvest with more and more chemical inputs and treating soil like dead dirt, like an inert medium right. instead of the life-giving resource that it is. And um, so, um, so you know, and, and we have just way too much livestock, like the, the population's yeah. like totally unsustainable. Um, so... So organic is like the is you know is is a is a good step a key step which is basically removes chemical inputs you can't use chemical fertilizers or chemical pesticides when you grow crops but in and of itself it doesn't have um, necessarily prescribe a, a, a high level way of managing your your farm it just says what you can't do it doesn't right. say what you should do mm-hmm. um, and regenerative is kind of what you should be doing. And regenerative is a set of principles where you farm in nature's image and um, if you, in a natural ecosystem, you never see bare ground or that's, a, you know, that's 
maybe there was a fire or something and then quickly it's covered over. Yeah. And when you see our farmlands, it's like bare and open to erosion and topsoil loss. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. And we need to have roots in the ground all the time. So you're always having, you're always putting in your next crop or a cover crop as soon as you harvest. Uh, so you keep roots in the ground, you keep a diverse crop rotation. Right. Um, which this interrupts pest cycles naturally. Um, and then uh, yeah, minimize the, the chemical inputs. And it's essentially yeah. the Joel Salatin polyphase farms model. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, it's in, in, in large extent. I mean, I would, my one critique of polyphase, um, I mean, obviously it's outside of the factory farm model uh-huh. and um, that's crucial. And obviously having animals be on grass, especially ruminants is, 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 is awesome. Um, but, um, the feed, like he's like, so there's a difference between ruminants, which is your your cattle, right? And they they have large a, herbivores, large herbivores, so they can actually get their energy from grass. Um, but chickens and pigs, monogastrics like ourselves, they can supplement off pasture. I mean, they eat some bugs and some seeds, but they're the lion's share of their diet still coming from grain mm-hmm. that's being bought in from elsewhere, and so Joel is as of as my current understanding is still not like that grain like how that grain is grown is going to kind of make or break the um kind of the 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 impact of how the earth is being treated the amount of carbon that's being sequestered sequestered uh, one way to look at it is if we wave a magic wand and get all of our chickens and pigs out of their cages and back on the land in a kind of polyface style uh uh, farm, which is obviously great from an animal welfare perspective, to the extent that um, they're treated well and have freedom of movement, and, and ideally their end is humane and quick. Um, that even if we wave a magic wand, if we don't change their feed, like you're still for a monogastric, yeah. you still got to feed the same amount of corn and soy as you would in a cage, right? As on a on a, on a pasture, yeah. And you're gonna have to grow that somewhere, and you have to grow. It. And so how that's grown is mm-hmm. still matters, right? Crucially, and it's kind yeah. of a, a a hole in the Alan Savory argument, right? As well, because isn't that sort of part of the same thing? Yeah. So, like one of our critiques of the Savory certification is um, on the ruminant side, it's solid that you know, insofar as they're emphasizing cattle should be on grass, they should be eating only grass uh, on on a given land. Mm-hmm. Um, but their certification has a whole in insofar as bought in feed when you look at bought in uh you know corn or soy for your monogastrics but then even for ruminants they'll buy in hay chopped hay mm-hmm. and cut hay and a lot of times that hay is grown like all feed crops with a whole bunch of synthetic fertility and pesticides so like even if you're regenerating the land where your livestock are roaming like what about the land that's growing all your feed crops and if you're not taking responsibility for uh-huh. that then you're not having you, you don't, you have, don't a have a comprehensive vision holistic. for exactly yeah. yeah yeah look you're a long time vegan dude like what since like 96 or something like yeah, that 96. Like, yeah all yeah. right you know i've been vegan for 15 years uh yeah you know, i would i would prefer to you know have a vegan utopia where we all wake up and realize that we don't need to be eating these animals at all that it's incredibly inefficient and unsustainable yeah, and cruel and all of that yeah. and just you know, we all we all you know have this you know spiritual epiphany, and we transcend to the next you know plane of consciousness overnight. We're working uh, on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, 
would, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm working hard towards that vision as well, but that's not mm-hmm. happening tomorrow. Uh, and given the fact that uh, it's not a plausible reality in the immediate future, we do have to consider, um, you know, better solutions for the omnivorous planet that we live on. And that involves taking into consideration, you know, how we're raising these ruminants. Is there a better way for the meat eating population while we continue to eat meat and the demand for meat continues to rise? So um, one of the big questions I have for you is, you know, I laud you for pursuing this regenerative organic certification. I think it's super important, Um, but is this, if we were to all adhere to this standard, we couldn't, we don't have enough land or resources to feed the demand for meat as it currently stands, right? Like if all farms certain, you know, adhere to this standard overnight, all of a sudden, we There'd be a lot less livestock. We can't. We can't do it, right? No, no I mean that's it. I mean the, this method of farming depends on a on a on a much lower population, right? Ten like percent of the population of livestock out of their cages, integrated back into the land, mm-hmm. and and you know, and to be clear, animals are not essential to a regenerative organic system. You know, we can't have a totally vegan uh, uh, method of farming, but insofar as livestock are involved, then. Yeah, they need to be integrated in a pasture-based way and their population needs to be dramatically reduced. So regardless of whether we choose to eat meat or not, we have to eat much Uh less of it and much better if we wanna transition our agriculture to a truly regenerative basis. And and that becomes problematic when we see the rise of the middle class in places like China and India where the demand for meat is skyrocketing right right now. Yeah, so that paints a, a grimmer picture well, in terms and, of the plausibility of this. Oh, absolutely. And actually, so another big piece of our advocacy is on meat reduction and uh-huh. ve- vegan advocacy. And we, we're big supporters of Good Food Institute. Yeah. And, um, and you know, many Bruce other- on that show a Yeah, times. Bruce, he's rocking. And obviously bringing in the next level meat substitutes and dairy substitutes mm-hmm. um, are key. Um, we just obviously need to be reducing our meat consumption in, in the developed world, but then as you say, in the developing world, like this is not, we, you know, we we need to skip what we did. Uh-huh. Like, like we need to, it's kind of like hopefully what they're doing with like going from no phones to, you know, 4G cellular. Like if we can just- Skipping the step. Skipping the, you know, skipping some coal, maybe going straight to solar, you know, right. if we can skip what we did here with, Going these right intensive to factory sell farming, agriculture. Of, yeah. yeah, you know, or, or at least, well, you know, because like India, right? Like they have, I mean, most of their population was and maybe still is vegetarian, although now that's starting to shift. But they still have the cultural memory uh-huh. of the ethics of it. So if you can bring in, like, okay, so now maybe they develop a taste for you know lamb or or whatever it is that is interfering with kind of their traditional. More is like if you can bring in like a you know like a clean meat or a something that mm. approximates that taste and texture and feel on price and everything else Bruce says you know then you know maybe we can avoid um, right the disasters and you, and you of, don't have to overcome a lifetime of a lifetime habit of eating meat in a different way yeah right I yeah. mean the cultural memory is there and you know hopefully yeah, yeah. it's going to be interesting because it's happening at some point. Yeah, it's you know um, I, I was on a panel with the found, with the CEO of Memphis Meats, uh-huh. and I think Uma at the, Valetti? Yeah, it was like a few years ago, and I think he had like the meatballs were like ten grand a pop yeah. at that point, but I think they're down to a grand and are about to be 
10 bucks and you know oh, very wow. soon they're going to be you know 10 cents so yeah that'll be a whole different he world he keeps saying because I, I keep bugging him to come on the podcast he's like i'm not ready yet we're still working we still got a long way to go but it seems like it's advancing pretty quickly i mean it really is just a matter of time before they hit some inflection point and the price will will you know be able to comport with um consumer demand for it and we're going to see some big changes yeah i think i think uh, you know Increasing the availability of tasty plant-based options is, you know, a key part of the equation. And then the consciousness of, you know, why we should be thinking about, uh-huh. you know, what we're eating and do we really need to be killing an animal to sustain ourselves or do we, can we not do that? And if we choose to do that, let's like really take responsibility right. for that and make sure that animal lived a life that, you know, wasn't, you know, going to hell and back. Um, and... You know, and that's a big other part of our advocacy is integration of cannabis and psychedelic allies mm-hmm. to help us wake up mm-hmm. to uh, some of these dimensions of our kind of collective planetary being. And um, so we're hopeful that, you know, we're gonna be bringing these these allies into the culture in a significant way in, in the coming years. And as the sustainable, you know, plant-based options are more and more uh-huh. available and, you know, yeah. And the consciousness, the vegan movement, everything else is really hitting its stride, so. You yeah. are your grandfather's grandson. Yeah. You are. I mean, I wanna get into the, I wanna get into the consciousness stuff because this, this is like amazing to me and super trippy and awesome mm-hmm. uh, because you're carrying a certain vibration that really is the legacy of your grandfather. And it's, it's fascinating to see how you've taken that mantle in a very natural way. And not only, you know, gracefully ushered it into um, the business that you're running with your brother, but but also you know in this very activist way, in this very conscious capitalist way that has made not only a social impact but also um, an environmental and economic impact because you've grown this company from you know what what was it like four million yeah. in revenue in '98 to like 111 last year or something like that, right? 122. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. man. I mean, that is quite something, but let's track it back to your grandfather because this guy was like off the charts, like a rock star in terms of like what he was putting out into the universe at that time. Yeah, uh, yeah, so we're um, just incredibly fortunate that our founder, my granddad, Dr. Bronner, um, mm-hmm. he was an amazing individual. He, he himself was a third generation master soap maker from a Jew, German Jewish mm-hmm. soap making family. Um, he was, so by the time he came of age in the 20s, like his dad and two uncles were running the family enterprise. We had three factories and we were supplying most of the liquid soap to public washrooms in, in Germany. Um, he was clashing with his dad and uncles in more of a generational way. Um, they were pretty like, you know, they didn't want to be mixing politics and soap. And my granddad was pretty intense um, mm-hmm. back then. He was Zionist and... And just, just what do you think? Sorry, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you a couple times. Uh, what 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 was it about? Like, what made him that way? What you happened know, in I his childhood a, that made him this like spiritual warrior from a young age? Yeah, um, I don't. You know, my second cousin, like my my granddad's cousin, said to me once. This guy Henry Epstein said that you know what? There was always one in a generation that was kind of out there, uh-huh. like in the Heilbronners, like, the, and you know, my granddad got that gene. That's how he just kind of said yeah. it. I definitely got the gene um, yeah, in my generation. Have it. 
And yeah, you know, he was just kind of born different. I know he, he, you know, he got, he was, I remember my great aunt saying, yeah, that poor emo, you know, his dad beat him a lot, tried to beat that craziness out of him, uh-huh. and, you know, and, and, and <laughs> so he came to the States when he was 21, more uh-huh. to just kind of do his own thing and get, you know, kind of leave his family and, and forge his own life. But it was early days of the Nazi party, right? And he sort of saw it coming and was like, I'm out of here. No, he, I mean, it was the, I mean, this is 29. So, I mean, the eventual eventual dimensions were not clear about mm. what was about to happen. Um, and he did become increasingly desperate to get his family out. Um, his, he, uh, his two younger sisters got out, one in 36. Um, Lottie went at the age of 20 and she ended up in a kibbutz in Israel, the mm-hmm. Engev. And then another, Louisa got out in 38, right before they closed the border. And she became a professor of German at UMass Boston. Mm. Um, but before that developed waterproofing compounds for the American GI paratroopers in the Korean war, but didn't get any credit. Everyone's a chemist yeah. in your family. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, and so, but his parents, like many of the bourgeois Jews thought they were gonna ride out the madness and, uh-huh. and uh, they're like, don't rock the boat. Yeah, like, we'll just, yeah. Know. Hitler will be. Everyone will forget mm-hmm. about him, you know. And uh, but the factory was Aryanized in 1940, and they were deported and killed in 42 and 44. Mm. Um, so out of that, this and then at the same time, my granddad had married and and fathered three children in the 30s, and then his wife died, got sick, and died right around the same time frame, in the mid 40s. So he was just dealing with immense tragedy. Uh, yeah. in his life. But the way he dealt with it was, you know, he felt urgently called that in a nuclear armed world that the next Holocaust, if we don't realize our transcendent unity across religious and ethnic divides, that the next Holocaust, we're gonna all die, we're gonna yeah. all perish. And that's when he felt called to go forth and um, spread his, his message of unity, um, what he called the moral ABC and he was also selling this, this natural so i mean he had become a, so, a consultant to the u.s soap industry mm-hmm. and helped pngs of the world build factories and launch products um but, but his he, main thing was sort of giving these sermons right did yeah. he was he did he come right to la he uh, no he landed in chicago in milwaukee uh-huh. so he was in milwaukee and then chicago which is kind of a crazy place to be that was the center of anti-semitism in the states back then that's father mclaughlin had this radio show that was super anti-Semitic. He uh-huh. was Chicago-based and not the best place in certain respects. But um, he he was actually in 1947. He was actually interned in a mental asylum against his will. Some uh, a guy named Fred Walker had actually crucified himself, or someone obviously helped him for Dr. Bronner's peace plan. So he gotten on the authorities' radar screens, and so they basically locked him up. Um, Right, and, you got put in an asylum yeah, for a minute there. Yeah, and uh, during which we have, he de- designed like a settling system for this factory across the river that was spewing waste. He actually like cleaned it up for them, like while he was in there, like he was <laughs> basically did a job. While he was institutionalized? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, oh then, and then he fled and on his third attempt, he, he got out of there and then he came straight to- He escaped? Yeah, he escaped and came to LA. Oh my so God. So that's, uh, and then and then set up shop in Pershing Square mm-hmm. and was in a tenement hotel, you know, mixing up his family soaps and sermonizing on the moral ABC. And- um, It's real, all, all one All one philosophy. God faith. Yeah. They, Which is kind of like, uh, 
Does it derive from the teachings of the Essenes? Yeah, so he yeah. saw himself as an Essene rabbi. Right. And, um, and but, but he basically drew from all faith traditions. His attitude is that all, all spiritual giants of whether it's Gautama or Moses or Lao Tzu or Socrates, that, it, that they all were astronomer prophets are all inspired witnessing the majesty of the yeah. heavens, the cosmic rhythms. And, um, and that all of them were basically saying the same thing that, you know, get over yourselves, realize your transcendent unity. We're all children mm-hmm. of the same divine source. And that's so for him, the labels were a way of showing the commonality across the different faith traditions and that, um, you know, that, that fundamentalism was the enemy, not, not right. religion per se. Right. Um, have you ever been to Rancho La Puerta? Yeah. In Mexico? Yeah, totally. So do you know Edmund. the story of Edmund Zekely? Zekely? How do yeah. you say it? Yeah, I think Because he saying. sounds like a very similar guy to your grandfather. Yeah, totally, I mean, man. Amazing dude who was like fruitarian in the jungles and had met Deborah's family when she, he, she was like a child bride and, he creates this uh, this center. It's a whole long story of him being Jewish and not being able to settle in right. America or being able to go back to Europe and finding this piece of land in Mexico and becoming like the first pioneer of wellness and, and fitness in the same era in which your grandfather was living. But he was- An area almost. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And being totally into the Essenes, he wrote all these super trippy books and you know it was all about healthy lifestyle and yeah. living this ascetic life based on the tradition of those Palestinian Jews. I, I almost went and bought, uh, built myself a biogenic dwelling and was doing the grass yeah. for a little bit. I mean, he, <laughs> yeah, he, he's- uh, he, he, Did they know each other? Um, they must have. They must right? have. They must he, have, yeah. Because like Aldous Huxley and people like that were going down to Rancho La Puerta yeah. at the time. And Edmund must have, he, he was probably I, around your grandfather's age. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, my granddad, you know, had his scene book of life. I mean, I was right. definitely totally marked up. And um, so I'm, I'm sure there was some direct communication and obviously on the same wavelength. And, you know, they were bringing in, you know, meditation and Pilates and raw foods. And, uh-huh. Like way before anybody, you know? That was the first place also where, because he was, Edmund was Hungarian and a lot of um, below the line uh, workers in Hollywood, you know, people lighting camera, people like that um, were Hungarian as well. And it was a small community. Um, They all knew each other. So, you know, that part of Hollywood kind of knew what Edmund was doing down in Mexico. And so, when a starlet needed to like lose weight or dry out or you know some actor mm. or whatever they would they would they would send them down to Rancho La Puerta and that was the first that was the beginning of like you know what we all know like when hollywood people like go to detox or, or whatever right. but they were doing it back in like the 40s and 50s before any of you know this stuff that we kind of you know see everywhere happening now yeah no right on man and and i guess Ed, i mean i actually just got the full download there in the last year and a half. Uh, I finally went and visited, uh-huh. and, and I guess he, you know, he was pretty radical. You know, totally he didn't like, radical. you know, he didn't quite like how the spa kind of was gentrifying or whatever. Uh-huh. I mean, he was like pretty, you know, pretty ascetic and wanted, you know, people to be on this pretty strict raw food, yeah. you know, yogic path. And uh, yeah, I guess clashed a little bit, but. Um, but Deborah's really made something wonderful happen there. She's amazing. I mean, yeah. she's got to be like ninety-five now or something. Yeah, like and, that. She's and she's still rocking kicking it. it yeah. You know, 
Um, anyway, we got off we got off track a little bit, but um, there's so many similarities there. I couldn't help yeah. but like talk about that. But the thing is, um, I mean, so your grandfather, he's he's giving these sermons in Pershing Square, which for people who don't know is like this square right in the center of like downtown Los Angeles. Yeah, preacher man. But then yeah. people are more interested in the soap than what's coming out of his mouth, right? So the soap becomes a vehicle for him to deliver his message. Right, he, he realizes that many people are um, just coming to his sermons to get the soap he's, he's selling on the side and not sticking around to hear what he has to say or, or paying attention. So he puts what, he, what he's saying on the labels of our soap. And the soap always has been more of um, the vehicle for the label than the labels yeah. there to promote the, the soap. I remember and, the first time that I actually took a like I saw the soap in the store and I took a moment to actually read what was on it. And I was like, this is fucking insane. Like how yeah. do they even get away with having this like on a consumer product in a store? Yeah. Like if you ever actually sat and read what's on yeah. this, it's completely mind blowing. Yeah. And it's almost like it just slips under the radar. Like, I don't know how many people like don't even pay attention to that, but like, it's super intense. Yeah, it's, you know, it's right there <laughs> I mean, in plain like, sight. I know. You know? It's yeah. right on the soap. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think like, you know, my granddad uh, went, to, he blames on the shock treatments he received when he was, when he was interned against his will, but he went, he went, he basically lost his vision and was completely blind by, by 1970. And I don't think he realized just how busy the labels were getting uh -huh. as he was downloading more and more of the full truth on, on the- He's just he, channeling this, yeah. right? And so now, you know, so now we've got, you know, 3000 words on, on, a, on a core label and, um, and it's intense as you say, but it's also like very in interesting textural kind of backdrop. And when you look at it, it's got this old apothecary feel and look and I think, um, yeah, I mean, ideally people spend time and, and, and grok the message but it's kind of just kind of conveys, you know, kind of old time authenticity right. and simplicity, and yeah, yeah. it has so, that kind of vintage vibe that yeah. now is is like hipster modern, I suppose. Yeah, I know? mean, it violates every design principle, you right. know, but <laughs> yeah. it works. You know. <laughs> has yeah. it always had that same look and feel? Has it evolved at all, or have you stayed true to what it looked like when he was doing it? Yeah, well, he evolved it himself. Like, there's a funny quote in Esquire that interviewed him in like 1973, and the and the reporters like, you know, hey, what happened to Freud and Young? You know, uh -huh. and my grandma was like, you know, Freud and Young important, but no longer relevant to uniting the great spaceship <laughs> Earth. And, you know, <laughs> so he was, yeah. We're brought to you today by Seed, gut health is all the rage, there's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, 
gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources, and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, It's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com richroll to start your free month today. 
That's wakingup.com slash Rich Roll. So break down his, his uh, philo- you know, his like psychonaut philosophy of, you know, unity of consciousness for the betterment of humanity. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, he, it was within an overall, you know, Judaic, I, I think, um, context, uh-huh. but, um, you know, he saw that the creator and creation were one, we're all one, we're at, in our essence, one with one another and our separateness is illusory and, um, and yeah. So, and he just advocated uh, a simple living close to the earth um, he conducted most of his business on the sun deck on a, in a leopard print speedo. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, and. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's yeah. like a movie. Yeah. No, he was amazing. You know, you know just really liberated cat. Um, and, but really intense, you know. I mean, right. Yeah. If you, yeah, he was kind of on the, coming from the mountaintop. And 24/7. at the time, I mean, we can look back on it now and laud him and see him as this visionary, but what, how was he received? You know, in you know when he was around. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the rise of the counterculture really resonated. Uh-huh. It was like perfect timing. Um, I mean, here's this guy, you know, talking about you know peace and love and living in harmony with the earth with a soap that's concentrated, versatile. You can wash your your hair, your dog, the dishes by yeah, the side of the river. It's like not, the famous eighteen uses or whatever it is. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and just really resonated to the time. It. Yeah, which we we now have toothpaste, uh-huh. and we say brushing with Bronner's just got a lot better. Uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, I actually haven't tried to brush my teeth with like the Castile soap. Yeah, it, you know it works. Uh-huh. You know, it's not, don't recommend it. <laughs> uh huh. So uh, yeah, so with that, that like beat culture, and then. 60s counterculture he 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 had his little niche within that yeah and and i think he was frustrated that his audience wasn't you know mm-hmm. planetary wide and and you know, right. he, he wanted to unite this spaceship instantly and you know it was um i guess maybe disappointed it wasn't happening on the timetable or uh, that he was hoping but you know i i think we're you know appreciating all of his, um, you know, incredible gifts, but also some yeah. of the flaws in his character. And, you know, my granddad was not a good dad. I and mean, my granddad basically went to go save the world and abandon his family more or mm-hmm. less. And and was, so my dad and That's uncle- That's what happens with guys like this. Yeah. You know? That's the other side of the whole thing. Yeah, you know, and he had dubbins of the Holocaust behind him. And, you know, uh-huh. just like, you know, it's just, I mean, there's just a lot of generational tragedy coming through the generations, but my, dad really compensated and made sure that our family, like the families was first and, and wanted nothing to do with all one vision or religion in general. Mm-hmm. He was just all about family and community. And so me and my brother and sister, you know, came up in this incredible household in Glendale, Reaganite suburban. Right, stable. And stable yeah. and just beautiful. And my dad was like the most moral guy. I mean, he would just, you know, stand up for whoever and just volunteer his time. and. And so we blend his um, kind of focus on pragmatic, what can you do for your brother right here, right now, you uh-huh. know, with my granddad's more cosmic Yeah, utopian trip. idealism. Yeah. Cause he set the company up originally as like a nonprofit religious organization and would just funnel all the profits back into, you know, into causes, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like not, 
I mean, that there's conscious capitalism and then there's just, you know, an unsound business practice in terms of like longevity, right? Yeah, and, and IRS disagreed with his tax exempt. This is not uh, a religious organization. Yeah, it's a soap company. Right, Yeah. so, so and actually uh-huh. my dad stepped in, one of my mom and uncle in the late 80s to um, basically get our, the company out of bankruptcy. My granddad was owed crap tons of back taxes on a, uh-huh. on, you know, basically uh-huh. not having paid them. And, um, but, you know, had, was surrounded by a bunch of bad advisors as well. And so my dad and mom and uncle, um, dad especially really, you know, righted the ship. And yeah. my dad had, had come up and was working for a chemical specialty firm as the head of operations in Atwater area. Um, where I came up and developed, among other th- other things, firefighting foam um, for forest and right. structure fires. That's now standard and modified a version for Hollywood as a fake snow. So we grew up blasting snow foam on trees right. for alka seltzer. And this is still the same and, stuff that they use, right? Did he patent that and like it's his? That's the industry yeah, standard. Yeah, it's yeah. Warner Brothers is a master distributor, but uh-huh. yeah. So wow. he, you know, so so the firefighting foam is owned by some Tel Aviv. Based chemical conglomerate right. at this point. So when you're growing yeah. up in essentially the Pasadena area, Glendale, Pasadena, like yeah. that must have been you must have been a popular kid. Like let's go over to your house and and we blast and foam you can on each other. On, yeah, all man. Over the place. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh-huh. And yeah, I mean when you when you blast foam in the world, I mean it just transforms. You know, every, uh, we're all one under foam. Uh-huh. You know, and, and it just trying to can't be in a bad mood. Yeah, you know, it just transfigures the world. I mean, whatever's going on is over. You know, it's now it's foam time and and. Uh, and it's just this ecstatic liberatory space. Um, and now Bronner's, you guys have like a truck that drives around and sprays foam at people's yeah, private parties and stuff. Yeah, so kind of blending my granddad and dad. So we take uh, Dr. Bronner's soap, which is at this point made, you know, it's the same simple recipe mm-hmm. as for five generations. Um, but you know, now with regenerative organic, our, our olive oil is coming from Palestine and Israel. Um, olive oil, or coconut oil is coming from Sri Lanka out of a tsunami relief project and palm oil in this super sustainable way uh, out of Ghana in this smallholder projects. Um, but we run that through the compressed air foam system uh, and, and, and blast basically Dr. Bronner's soap, soap in, like a, in a firefighting foam form. Uh-huh. And we have a fire truck that in honor of my dad, my dad's power animal is an eagle. So we have this huge blazing like fire phoenix on the front with Tibetan fire on the fire truck. <laughs> and then like big plexiglass yeah. trailers that we like shower trailers we blast uh-huh. foam into for pride. And Do you take that you know. to Burning Man? Yeah, actually the the original foam unit was, I built it. So when my dad, my granddad died in 97, then my dad died in 98. And I had a whole complex journey to uh, embrace. Um, we're taking, gonna, we're yeah. gonna get there. We're gonna oh, yeah. get into that, but okay. go ahead. But yeah, so we had to shut down my dad's side of the foam business basically uh-huh. and focus on the soap business. It was just this overwhelming time. And like 10 years later, I remember I was just like, you know, pop, you know, how'd you do it? How'd you, you know, raise a family and run a business mm. and, you know, just going through a tough time and just remembering like, wow, how much fun we had with the foam. And right. so I went and built a, a foam unit from one of his late designs and brought it to Burning Man uh-huh. in 2009. And just, you know, hey, this will be fun. And like, it's sure enough, man, we were yeah. clearing out blocks of people <laughs> like, what, you know? And like, just like, we're just blasting them. And, you know, so that's, it was basically yeah. born at Burning Man or reborn at uh-huh. Burning Man. But yeah. the foam kind of, yeah. in many ways, is what saves the soap company. 
It was mm-hmm. like the what sustained your family and allowed you guys allowed your dad like some some um, stable income in order to write the ship with the soap company. Is that fair? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, saved in more ways than one. Really, I mean, it was my dad's independent role from my granddad, who was just kind of super intense and overbearing. And so my, you know, it was a way for my dad to just kind of he oversaw right. the soap production for my granddad his whole life, uh-huh. but just had his own business and, and yeah. focus in life. And um, and then, yeah, and then as far as income, right. I mean, our soap company was in bankruptcy, so absolutely yeah. the phone business was what So we had. when you were a kid, what was your perspective on your grandfather? Uh, it, you know, he was intense. And especially I think for his grandkids, he just thought it was extra important for us to download the, the moral ABC. And uh-huh. so it was just kind of nonstop. But know. was your dad like pissed off? My dad would, he was protective of us, you know, I think, cause my grand, I mean, it was fine. It was just, you know, my grand was like, you know, we must unite to spaceship earth, you know, and like, you know, You're what's like, the 13th? Unite to spaceship earth. You weren't even here for your fan. You were you couldn't even stick around for, to raise me. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. For, it was a little triggering for my dad. Uh-huh. Um, for me, it was just kind of like, what, you know, it's kind of sailing over my head. Um, but, uh, you know, he would, he would say, you know, we expected us to memorize the, the moral ABC, but luckily he was blind. So we could pick up, uh, a bottle and you know, he's like, what's the 13th? And I'm like, uh, he was like, oh, very good, very good. <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, yeah, it wasn't until later that I really appreciated uh-huh. what my granddad was all about. So and, I gather that you were a fairly traditional kid growing up, I mean, playing football and soccer. Yeah. And, you, know, you weren't like the hippie Grateful Dead kid. No, uh-huh. um, I mean, we, you know, we're mischievous, but yeah. we're not, uh, yeah, it took a little while to, you know, really understand that dimension right. of society and business. Right, so you're traditional, you go to Harvard, you study biology, you're playing sports, you're all American kid in many ways. Uh, but then life brings you to Amsterdam and then things begin to shift. Is that, is yeah. that accurate? Yeah, uh, you know, college was where the shift began. Uh-huh. Um, you know, definitely, um, you, you know, like being exposed to cannabis and psychedelics initially, in, in, within college context and a lot of free thinking and, and different ideas. And, um, you know, biology, I, I was, um, you know, I was never like the most academically inclined kid and, and these non-interactive large lecture formats were like, you know, what, what what am I doing here? This is wasting my time. I'll just copy the notes before the final, you know, uh-huh. like this is an interactive learning. And, um, and just spent a lot of time just with friends and and especially cannabis was a big sacrament and kind of retired from alcohol culture. And and in some ways, my at least my athletic identity wrapped up within NCAA football and played rugby, which was a more club sport, a little way looser, kind of yeah. the black sheep of the athletic program, but a lot of fun. Uh-huh. Um, but in some of those um, early, experiences well and then with mushrooms and psychedelics an early an early mushroom experience was um was i just remember looking down at my arm like you know what does it mean at a quantum level i'm not different like my body's not different from the world and when i eat and i poop the world's pouring into me and through me and i'm just one with it and had the like my first kind of unity experience in a not you know in a super overwhelming way, but just like, whoa, and just yeah. really re- starting to realize like the limitations of the materialistic kind of mm-hmm. scientific worldview that would explain like human consciousness and being just as a, 
kind of a narrow adaptive trait that, you know, in a, in a certain sense, sure, but was completely inadequate to the level of the mystery of our existence. And um, so I was, you know, rejecting, and I had earlier rejected Christianity. I was raised Protestant, actually. My um, dad wanted nothing to do with anything. My mom was Protestant. Mm. And then, but when I was 12, I was like, well, if God loved the world so much, why did you send his one only son to, to just here? What about the Chinese? And, you know, and just had rejected Christianity kind of on its own terms. But then was really having a problem with this materialistic kind of science worldview. And um, so graduated Harvard with, you know, the fair amount of question. I mean, I was still pretty apolitical, um, but had started to have some important questions and, yeah. and experiences. But then, yeah, Amsterdam is where the fuel right. kind of got so poured on what, I mean, what led you to Amsterdam? Just to, just to deepen that inkling that was initiated at Harvard? Yeah, and, and I mean, at the time, I mean, Canada, I mean, I saw within the cannabis experience, like something really important, like that there was, you know, that we were, this was a sacrament worth appreciating. Like, I mean, I knew I had not maybe the healthiest relationship at that point, but enough to know that what we're doing right here is way more important than what a lot of people are doing around us right now. And like just being with each other and listening to music and laughing and, being awesome and uh-huh. um, and so of course Amsterdam at the time was the mecca um, of cannabis culture. Right. And um, this is before Prop 215. This is 95. Um, so a lot of the American growers and were over in Amsterdam. And so I happened to be intersect. Well, I had a Euro pass. I mean, technically I was going to go see Europe, but we got to Amsterdam. And it was the eighth annual High Times Cup, Cannabis Cup. <laughs> and uh, that was, no more no more train rides. You're just there. Yeah. Well, I, I, I went into <laughs> yeah. the squat, you know, there's yeah. an incredible squat scene there, this uh-huh. activist artistic squat scene, the whole, you know, all, all so international and interesting. And I'm just like, what? This is amazing. I don't, I'll go somewhere else later. I'm going to stay here. And um, just ended up having some huge experiences, some really massive psychedelic experiences. And, was in a squat with you know multi generational like people coming out of the counterculture and in particular there is a church in Arkansas of all places that had formed with cannabis as its sacrament in ninety three our church it was called and sure enough the feds busted it up and church members were on the run facing ten years of life and a couple of them were in my squat and that was in the context of me of these really massive psychedelic experiences that really exposed me to the to the fact that somehow love and light is at the heart of this existence as absurd and tragic and hard as it can be that that is our ground of being and um and you know meeting these people like just really waking up to america and that wow these beautiful people if they step back back foot here are going to be arrested and they're thrown away Mm-hmm. And the sacrament that helps us wake up. The, the drug war is in a, an important respect of religious war on the sacrament of my people. And so really waking up to that, to that dimension. And Sam actually also was vegetarian. So that was my first, like, I remember him just, I was wide, wide open, you know, and people were coming at me and like, he's like, yeah, you know, why are you eating meat? You know, and I just remember like, just kind of going on a, on a cannabis meditation, like, just like, yeah, okay, I got a knife, I'm in the store. I, can you know kill that cow or I can just chop down some some lettuce and 
you know, I think I'll just let the cow alone. And, and that was it. And that was it, you know, just like a real easy kind of, uh, you know, I mean, it was, you know, not super easy, but it was like, a, you know, like, yeah. okay, it's pretty clear that, and that's kind of in a way like these allies can help us when we use them intentionally collapse distances um, and barriers. And um, so anyways, it was just reorganizing my life in a huge way, going through these huge shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, and waking up, to, you know, well, what else is wrong, you know, in the world and just waking up to the collective disaster of Western consumption on the planet, um, you know, not just in terms of meat and animal products, but just in general, our rapacious rape of nature to fuel our material economy and just the total lack of consciousness. And yeah. I mean, that's quite a spiritual epiphany. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I don't have... I don't have direct experiences with with psychedelics. I'm I'm like I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been in recovery for a long time, and I never uh, experimented with psychedelics. And now I feel like that privilege has been taken away from me. Um, so I I won't have that experience. Um, but uh, I can't deny that I know a number of people like yourself who have had very profound experiences with these substances. Yeah. Um, and and it's been not just life-changing, but like determinative of the trajectory that you then choose to pursue for the rest of your life. Like those experiences inform in many ways, because at that time, it wasn't like you were going into the soap business, right? You didn't want anything to do with that. Yeah, in fact, my relevant uh, realization over there was like, I don't have to do anything as far as my family Uh or anything. I I can grow plants and and live, you know, and just fight this cause. And that's what I did. I came back, sold all my stuff and announced to my parents that I'm going to get to Amsterdam to grow plants. I mean, everyone needs to stand up against this unjust, you know, religious war. <laughs> and I'm vegan, which they were like way more upset about than the- Oh, than really? Going to, yeah, that was the yeah, thing they yeah. couldn't like, handle what? that? Oh, what is, wow. This is crazy. But, but it's amazing you like <laughs> tapped, you tapped a vein that, you know, your grandfather was dialed into, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost like you opened yourself up to a, a, a level of consciousness that was vibrating, you know, where he, Happen to be sitting, and you have this like all you know all one awareness, this unity consciousness that kind of overcomes yeah. you, and you have this sense of connectedness that then like protracting out into everything that you've done since infuses everything. Like sustainability is about connectedness; it's about a holistic perspective of the impact that we're having on the soil and the downstream you know implications of all of these decisions that we make. It's not just organic or vegan or non-vegan, like we have to broaden that aperture and realize the cascading implications of, of how all of these things are interrelated in a more, in a broader and more holistic way. And that sensibility, like the experience you related about, you know, pooping and the world kind of going through you is, a, is like a micro example of the macro being the sustainability implications of how, you know, we raise food to feed humans on planet earth. Yeah, no, absolutely, right? And just like how that, yeah, and in taking responsibility for your, your your plate as a farm is is your section of the garden out in the world. You know, what does it look like? And when you're being unconscious about what you're eating, you know, you're just creating a disaster, uh-huh. you know, just animals being treated abysmally and being fed crops grown in a completely uh, unsustainable way. 
But when you like take by workers who are being unfairly treated, yeah, man, it's just uh, totally. And then, but the solution's right there too. I mean, if you just are conscious about it and like, okay, I want to know who's growing my food and is it being done right? And if I'm going to eat an animal product, is it from a pasture-based system where the animal lived a life worth living? You know, and um, you know, you can start to make a shift by taking responsibility mm-hmm. um, with your food choice. Yeah, and embodying your grandfather's ethos and sensibility of using commerce as a form of activism. Like soap to him was a means of delivering a message and you've really done the same thing, but just done it in a more fiscally responsible way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all, I mean, it is, it is all cycles of energy and, and you know, just in, in our soaps like food on a plate, you know, it's all agricultural based and like us taking responsibility for our supply chains and um, making sure all the farmers are, are being paid a fair price and are growing our coconuts and olives and totally righteous ways, palm is a real important Yeah, when one. you say palm oil, like mm-hmm. alarm bells go off because right. it's, the, it's the number one offender when it comes to rapacious, you know, rainforest, yeah. de, you know, de-evolution. Yeah, so um, you know we also use hemp seed oil, and um, you know hemp has this reputation as being like the wonder crop that'll save humanity, and palm has the reputation as like you know the evil, most vile crop that'll take us you know right off the cliff edge. And the reality is is that it's that the the issue is how do we grow our crops, whether it's palm or hemp. It's the method of how we do it. It's not what the crop is. And palm is actually the highest per acre yielding oil crop and can be done in a totally regenerative, organic, sustainable way. Um, unfortunately, what's happening is in like a lot of our commodity crops are being, uh, they're clear cutting rainforests, mm-hmm. ripping up wetlands, dislocating communities, eliminating orangutan habitat in Borneo and Indonesia, especially. But you know, soy plantations are ripping up the you know Amazon, and so it's just a, in either case, like you know, how do we grow these crops in a regenerative way? And so with palm oil, like we're like, and like every company ever, we're we were buying from brokers, and we had no mm-hmm. visibility. We were buying on the commodity market. It's like who's got the cheapest coconut oil that meets our spec, you know, and that's how everyone you don't buys. Even know where it comes from. You have no idea, right? And so that's the problem. You just have this race to the bottom in the world. So we said, okay, we want to know who the farming communities are and just make sure that they're doing it correctly and, and then go to market in partnership with them. Um, so in, in the case of palm oil, we identified a really cool project in Ghana where um, smallholder farmers not farming more than two to five acres each um, are, are growing palm and are intercropping with banana and cassava and a kind of a rich farm ecosystem. And there's plenty of wild biodiverse habitat um, for wildlife. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, the palm is an especially important one, obviously, given mm-hmm. the concern um, with when it's not done that way, it's generally done in the worst possible And they're way. able to meet your your demand and do it in a predictable way that, yeah, that allows well, you to, you know, basically run your business fluidly. Yeah, so um, uh, at this point, yes, but it's been a whole adventure getting there. Yeah. And we do have some kind of next best uh, suppliers that are um, doing a really good job. There's Agropalma is a really good entity um, in Brazil and they're doing a really good job. It's not smallholder, but they're doing a pretty good job as far as when it comes to palm. There's another uh, project in Ecuador called 
natural habitats and they're doing a pretty good job. Uh Um, But I mean, we do the best job. And so we're we're, um, basically at at this point supplying all of our own demand. Right, and you're getting your olive oil from both Palestine and Israel? Yeah, Yeah. so so 90% from the West Bank, from Palestinian farmers in the West Bank who are basically farming regeneratively by default um, and have been facing really difficult circumstances bringing their olive oil to market, even local markets for a while there, just under the occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, I did a Google search for fair trade olive oil and the only thing that came up was Canaan and the West Bank. And I was like, wow, okay, that's intense. Yeah. But, uh, but they're beautiful, beautiful project founded by this guy, <laughs> Nasu Abu Farah, who uh, was a professor of anthropology at University of uh, Wisconsin at Madison, had a coffee house, folk, kind of folks singing, uh, Center for the Arts kind of vibe, and um, took the fair trade idea that emerged out of coffee and cocoa and applied it to olives to its farmers back home. And then, so we partnered with him, but then to be clear, we're not being anti-Israel about that. We do uh, 10% from the Israeli side, half from a Jewish family farm that happens to be related to us like five generations back, and then half from a Christian Arab Israeli project in the Nazareth region. So our olive oil is Muslim, Jewish, Christian in in the the Dr. Which perfectly fuses with your grandfather's vision and the spiritual principles that underpin the whole enterprise. Yeah. (laughs) It's like amazing. It's pretty beautiful, yeah. Yeah. So how do you, well, two things. First of all, um, as, as somebody for whom sustainability is top of mind and a, a huge priority, um, I have to ask the question: Like, if you're importing all of these, you know, products from all over the world, there's a, you know, there's a carbon implication yeah. to that. Do you try to offset that, or how do you think about or, you know, manage that aspect of the business? Yeah. Um, so, um, in the case of soap, uh, especially for liquid soap. We're limited to using what's called hyaluric oils, and these are shorter chain saturated fats. Uh-huh. Um, so all fats and oils are chemically triglycerides. So whether it's beef fat or coconut oil, it's all glycerin backbone with three fatty acids. And how long those fatty acids are and how many double bonds are in them makes the different characteristics of different fats and oils. Um, so in the case of soap, um, your, your high lather, good hard water soap comes from shorter saturated oils and that basically means coconut and palm kernel oil. That, mm-hmm. Those are the main main sources. So we're, we, we need to be involved in the tropics for those raw materials. And then olive oil, obviously we could be sourcing here from California, um, but you know, I think you know, in the hierarchy of value, we're, we're just super psyched by the fair trade um, project going on in, in Palestine and Israel and the Holy Land. Um, so we're gonna continue with that, but we are, uh, um, embarked right now on uh, a scope three emission audit, like basically taking responsibility for all the emissions involved at every aspect of our business, you know, all the freight, all the everything. Uh-huh. And then instead of investing in offsets, um, we're, we're pioneering this movement called insetting, which um, in, within our own supply chains, within our own agricultural supply chains, Regenerative organic methods like composting and returning biomass to the soil, you actually can sequester carbon in the soil. And in fact, soil is the largest land-based carbon sink. 
Um, and if we were to adopt regenerative organic methods at global scale, we could mitigate and bring down something like a third of excess atmospheric carbon back into the soil. A, a, a lot of the carbon up in the atmosphere is from mismanaged soils. It's from yeah. all the life that's been destroyed and killed, um, has been oxidized the atmosphere. But when you bring that soil back to life and are you know enriching it with carbon-rich uh, compost and inputs, you can start to build that carbon back up, bring that life back and, and that carbon. So we're, in a, we're basically uh, insetting our, our carbon uh, through uh -huh. through these practices in, in our own agricultural wow. supply chains. That's super cool. And meanwhile, like you guys are solar powered and- Yeah, we're solar kind of and yeah, and that's it. I mean, we need to decarbonize our economy and go green, um, but you know, we have this huge legacy load of excess atmospheric carbon dioxide and, and that's where regenerative organic is like the soil. I mean, obviously there's all these high tech solutions yeah. of taking carbon out of air, but I mean, if we just farm correctly, we can put a lot of it back into the soil. Mm -hmm. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Well, there's a lot of lip service given to, you know, the idea of conscious capitalism, but this is bred into the very DNA of everything that you guys do. Um, and I'm wondering whether at some point along this journey, when you start to take things like fair trade and um, making sure that you're sourcing from these regen, you know, farms, I would imagine that's driving your price point up there had to be people saying, you're insane. Like you're gonna go out of business. If you try to adhere to this level of integrity, 
uh, you're gonna price yourself just right out of the market and there's no way, like if you're, if you're interested in sustainability, we should make sure the business is sustainable first. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, I mean that, you know, without generating profits and healthy margins, yeah. we're, we're nowhere uh-huh. and we can't support any of the other causes. And, um, you know, and we do cap our family salaries at five to one and, and all right. our profits. Well, how long have you been doing that? Since 20 years, oh no, 15 years. 15 years, so basically the highest paid person at the company can't make more than five times the, the amount, lo- amount of salary the lowest paid. Yeah, and you know, we could see early on kind of what was happening and, and you know, I was like, I felt, well, within that five to one, we can mm-hmm. have a lot of fun, you know? And, um, and then just as like a good, just a good cutoff that right. at the time. And in a world of, of CEO, you know, compensation packages that are completely insane and out of whack. That's a refreshing breath of fresh air. Yeah, and and that, you know, you can just do so much good with, you know, not that much money if, if you're really um, focused on deploying it correctly and know the people, you know, like yeah. closely involved in the causes like we are. I mean, we really care about them. They're not cause marketing for us. Like we, we really want to that's shift the, the world. That's you know? the differentiator. I, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like there's so many companies out there now who know they have to play in this sandbox a little bit, especially with the coming of age of millennials who are concerned about these sorts of, you know, save the world type issues. They wanna patronize companies that are doing good and giving back. But most, the vast majority of companies who are quote unquote giving back are doing it in a very perfunctory way. Like, oh, we'll give you 1% of, to this or whatever, but it's not really part of the identity or like I said earlier, like the, the fabric, the DNA of the company. There's, a, different, there's yeah. a difference. Like this is what you guys do. Like the company exists so that you can support these causes. I feel that, like. That's right. And, that's, and that was when I came in, and decided that I did want to run Bronner's, and you know, had gone through an evolution of like, wow, I finally understand what my granddad's all about. Uh-huh. Really we didn't even get him. to the part of you coming back from Amsterdam and deciding you're going to be a soap dude. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> you, but you kind of got it. With, yeah. you know, like okay, I got to the plane of where my granddad was, and totally, whoa, you're right on it. You're 100 percent correct. Uh-huh. We do live in a spiritual mystery. There is love and light at the heart of all these faith traditions, and if they don't take themselves literally and make idols out of their beliefs and symbols and let them be open and fluid, like, yeah, they're, they're all pointing at this kind of mystery and and, um, and finally understood what my granddad was all about and took a little while to fully embrace uh, coming back to work for my dad, um, but I became a mental health counselor in the Boston area uh-huh. for a while and was did paranoid schizophrenic counseling and. Um, but in the course of this, did a lot of journaling and, and just realized if a company like Dr. Bronner's were to offer me a job, I go for it in a second. This is incredible. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then, your, was your yeah. brother working for the company at the time? No, he, in a similar way, he graduated Brown and went to teach English in Japan. Um, and he didn't, so, so I let my dad know shortly after my, um, uh, Dr. Bronner died in, March 7th of 97, on the same day our daughter Maya was born. So this is a very intense Wait, day. hold on a second. Yeah. Your daughter was born on the same day your grandfather died. Yeah, same, same exact day, March 7th of, of 97. Holy and, shit. And I was reading a book by this guy, Rudyard, uh, Rudyard I forget his last name, but he's- um, Kipling? No, uh, he was like an astrologer, kind of young astrologer cat. 
and he wrote this book called The Planetarization of Consciousness. And I just remember like that, that uh-huh. was the book I was reading, you know, and on and that day, on that, that day, and and you know, which is my granddad's whole. Was what was going t- on astrologically yeah. on that day? I there don't was some know, kind man. of convergence of you know yeah. celestial bodies. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. you know, and for me, you know, I I don't. Yeah, I don't put like literalness into like necessarily any given constellation context, but uh-huh. I think in general as a symbolic language of the soul and deeper currents that we live and breathe in, I like respect it and um, yeah, but that was a big, huge day. And, and shortly thereafter, let my dad know I was ready to come into the company. And then shortly after that, he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer mm-hmm. and um, given six months to live. Wow. Um, but which he he lived for twelve months. He was he lived to see his daughter married to my brother in law Michael, who's now our chief of operations. My sister Lisa's rad. She's got a blog called Going Green Green with a Bronner Mom. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and our dad, you know, just really downloaded the ropes and trained you up. Yeah, and we we're you know had to shut down his foam company to just concentrate on the soap. But was it, I then within the next couple of years convinced my brother like, hey, Mike, you gotta come back, dude, mm-hmm. this is nuts. And I'm not like I was, he had the yeah. same blocks I did working for my dad as working for, with his brother. And uh-huh. you know, I had to assure him like I'm right. way better. And <laughs> 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 yeah. I've seen so, the light, man. Yeah. The all-in-one vision, it's happening. Y- yeah. <laughs> no, he's like, what? No, <laughs> no. He, yeah. So he, and he's now, we're now- So he kind of f- handles the business end of it, right? And you're, you're, you're like, you, you can like be the cosmic engagement officer and, you know. Yeah. You know, we, um, <laughs> like my brother would say, like we're uh, 85, 90% the same, you know, um, the, like we, we share a lot of the similar passions and inclinations and, um, but yeah, he's he's a, a bit more pragmatic. I'm a little more cosmic, um, and uh, I definitely am geared at the activist side of the of the enterprise. And he's really, especially focused internationally. He's really built us out you know, internationally. But um, he's now president, and uh, we're fifty fifty in the company. Cool. Um, and yeah, just total partners. And um, so, what's uh, what's the future, man? What's uh, the future for Bronners? What's the future for what's the yeah. what's the what what is the forecast for planet Earth from your perspective? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm optimistic that you know that the different strategies in place, you know, like if if we do, if we dramatically reduce the amount of meat we're eating, if we shift our agriculture and one third of the Earth's surface to a sustainable, regenerative, organic management, uh, if we decarbonize the economy. You know, integrate these psychedelic allies, and you know, and to your point, like that, there's there's ways to misuse these allies, and mm-hmm. they often are. But in a medicine practice, to look at okay, we've got a meditation practice, and then a medicine practice that Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD, he saw LSD as an adjunct to meditative practice, and and um, and the founder of AA, Bill Wilson. Mm-hmm saw LSD. Famously as a, dabbled in LSD. Yeah, you know, as, as, as potential ways of interrupting habitual forms of thought and patterns of behavior. And um, um, so anyway, so so I'm optimistic with all these things. Um, well, I would just, we just can, to interject, yeah. um, I don't wanna interrupt your fluidity of thought, but what's interesting about you is that you're 
somebody who's been ahead of the curve, much like your grandfather. I mean, your grandfather was way ahead of things, right? Yeah. You're like slightly ahead of things because mm. you, I mean, you're, are you the person who was behind the initiative at Bronner's to be the first company to really start working with hemp? Like as yeah. soon as it became, well, you kind of were doing it before it was quote, like technically legal, right? And there was lawsuits. Oh yeah, totally. Prevailing over, yeah, it was like an now activist. it's all good. But mm -hmm. like to have hemp in your product was kind of a radical thing yeah. not that long ago, Yeah. right? So you were kind of initiated that whole thing. Um, and also you were talking about like microdosing and things like that, like before it became like a Silicon Valley, you know, hipster thing to do. Yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> you know, like, man, yeah. Creating uh, the grandfather's legacy forward. Yeah, well, and that's, yeah, right on, man. I mean, that's yeah. when I came into the company, it was like, I'm, we're gonna run this like my granddad did. This is uh -huh. an activist engine to make the world better. And that's what we're mostly here to do. And It's crazy yeah. what's going on with hemp now. Yeah, so, you know, it was such a long, hard slog there for 20 years. And now the tide has finally turned and, um, you know, back in the day, like when we first put into hemp seed oil in our soaps, yeah, it was a huge deal. Right, people um, thought they were gonna test positive at work and all kinds of stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And you, all the, you've been in a bunch of lawsuits over similar kinds of spats, right? With the USDA and... Yeah, so so first we went to the mat with DEA, like after Bush came in and 9-11, there was the DOJ went nuts, Department of Justice went nuts on medical marijuana, industrial hemp. And um, and Oregon's uh, euthanasia law, which is interesting because there's a much there's a ballot measure in Oregon to legalize medical therapeutic use of mushrooms, um, and definitely psilocybin, the active ingredient, has been found to be really beneficial for end of life anxiety. Like that's one of the big breakthrough areas, like just helping people reconcile to the dying process as part of a larger life, you know, mystery and and. Um, and, uh, but anyways, like the DOJ was going nuts on all, all these different kind of progressive movements. And so we got in a big fight uh, to preserve right. industrial hemp seed oil uh, imports back in 2001, which we ultimately won in 2004. And then fast forward to today, um, Kentucky was really the big shift with tobacco going down to twos and it's been the historical hemp heartland. Um, Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, has been our number one champion in Congress for the last four years. That's so weird. Yeah. And like John Boehner works for a cannabis company now. Yeah. Like, it's, like yeah. what kind of weird, bizarre universe do we live in? Yeah. Those things are happening. No, totally. And that's, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's incredible. So, um, so yeah, so I think um, it's just, so I was just in DC celebrating our big victory and it was, it's awesome, uh -huh. but we're, we're moving on. And like one of the, what the, the, the joke I would never, answer a journalist who would call me 20 years ago, like, oh, isn't hemp a stocking horse for marijuana? Like, right. you know, aren't you just opening up cultural space to reform cannabis generally? And of course the answer was always like, no, like we're focused on, on industrial hemp for seed and fiber and omega threes lacking in the American diet. And, you know, hemp fibers, it's amazing for textiles and clothing. And, and it's an amazing sustainable crop, grows like a weed. You don't need a lot of synthetic pesticides and fertility, but, uh, the joke was like, no, get it right. This is about LSD. You know, so the, the end game, yeah. you know. That's but, what you're angling for. Yeah, you know, just just integration of all these allies into, into the culture. And 
um, to help us care about and give a shit in the first place about the problems and, and, and care enough to engage and solve them. Yeah, well, so. I think we're at an inflection point with all of these issues. Uh, you know, the historical uh, trajectory of hemp is so, we could do a whole podcast on that alone with everything that William Randolph Hearst did to mm-hmm. prevent that from, you know, being a staple of American daily life. Um, because of his investments in paper and Henry Ford and his hemp car. Like there's a whole bunch of amazing stories that that come out of that, but we're kind of past that now. We've overcome that hurdle. And then we have people like Michael Pollan writing books about psychedelic experiences. We have Johns Hopkins and various other organizations pouring a lot of money into scientific research on the implications of whether it's microdosing or psilocybin or other psychoactive compounds on everything from depression to all manner of mental health, PTSD, et cetera. So it's very interesting times. And you've forecasted a lot of this. We're now living in this, we're kind of in this in-between phase, I think, but I think it's inevitable that we're heading in the direction that, that you foresee. When it comes to food and agriculture and soil, I too am optimistic, but, uh, and I've said this before, I feel like there is an arms race afoot. Like we have people like yourselves and there is a massive grassroots movement and a um, growing population of uh, activist consumers who are concerned about these things and the future of the planet for ourselves and future generations who are patronizing companies that are trying to do good like yours. Um, but that's butting up against, like we said earlier, you know, the growing populations uh, across the planet, not just in America, and this massive increasing demand for um, the products of animal yeah. agriculture and the rapacious, you know, um, practices that go into producing those. So who is gonna win? Are we gonna be able to significantly elevate our collective consciousness to the point that we can combat uh, you know, what ails us or is the dark force gonna prevail? Yeah, no, yeah, man. <laughs> you know, totally. it's Star I mean, Wars, that's, man, yeah, that's is what the, it is. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. And actually I was in an Ibogaine experience with a buddy um, and Ibogaine is, um, has great promise for opiate addiction in particular. It's it's this really powerful African root mm-hmm. um, principle uh, psychedelic, and in uh, Black Panther they kind of allude to um, allude to it a little bit. The medicine in that movie that, that where you hit the ancestral plane and that's and, not uh, ayahuasca. No, it's an iboga. So uh-huh. iboga, iboga. So okay. it's another arguably even even more intense uh, plant psychedelic ally and. But it, within this vision I had, like I saw my granddad over here and, and like the planet earth and all the life artists and activists fighting the machine and Trump and all the, you know, are we gonna win? And, and you know, feeling like forces, uh, other dimensional forces plugging in to help, you know, from who knows what. Uh-huh. And, um, and then at a certain point, golden light like breaks out on the earth, you know, it was, you know, kind and of peace on earth, packs, packs and beautiful. And <laughs> so I don't All know, right, man. Well, I will adopt, yeah. I will yeah. hold that energy <laughs> frequency for the future of humanity and yeah. the planet, man. Yeah, hopefully, man, <laughs> yeah. Good, well, I think that's a good place to close it down, dude. Yeah, How do well, you right feel? on, yeah, I think so. That yeah. was awesome, man, thank you so much. Uh, I love that, dude, thank you. Yeah. It's very cool. Um, I would say, I say with with um, a fair amount of certitude that after listening to this podcast, when you go to the store and you see that Dr. Bronner soap, 
you're gonna you're gonna look at it differently for the rest of your life after hearing this conversation. You're yeah. always gonna think back to, <laughs> to what we talked about. Whoa, today. what? Yeah, dude, right? that's even crazier than I thought. I know, man. So, uh, <laughs> what's 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 uh, what's up with you? Like, do you do you ever like? Um, I always like to close it down. Like, with people connect with your message, is there? How do they best connect with you? Do you ever do public talks? I know you go to Washington and you do protests and all this activist stuff. If somebody yeah. wants to get on your wavelength, like what's the best way for them to do that? Um, yeah, um, well, I, I guess I could give out my email. Um, Ooh, careful. But, oh, I know sure I should, do that? No, I don't know. I don't know if you oh, should yeah. do that, dude. Oh, the legendary Rich Roll <laughs> I don't know you. fan you weirdos. Might, you might no. get a few emails, that's all. <laughs> no, all no, no, from no, nice that, people. Oh, I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, well, I am often, I guess, speaking at different regenerative organic farming conferences uh -huh. and cannabis. We're launching um, uh, Brother David's, or I should be very clear, this has nothing to do with Dr. Bronner's, my family, but Brother David's uh, regenerative cannabis flower line and be hitting a lot of the cannabis trade shows. Um, and that's to promote the small family farmed, outdoor, correctly grown uh, medicine. And it's a nonprofit venture, totally all profits back to benefit, uh, you yeah. know, not because like cannabis, unfortunately, there's these huge corporate indoor grows that are dominating very energy and chemical intensive. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm out and about at different yeah. trade shows and talking and, um, but you can call up the number on Dr. Bronner's and you can totally reach me by email. I won't give out my personal oh, really? one. But yeah, like if so somebody's determined to get in touch with oh, you, it's absolutely. not that hard. No, okay. I will totally personally yeah. answer any any sincere, sweet note. And yeah. and and here's something Even I Even if it's not sweet, if it's got good points. <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> so you could do that. Uh, and as a final kind of thing, um, as a takeaway for people that are listening to this, uh, I feel like even if you're the most well-intentioned and fairly adequately informed consumer, when you go to the grocery store, the market, whatever, um, you see all of these labels on various products and it's confusing yeah. for the most intelligent among us. Like, what do these labels really mean? Does organic really mean what I think it means? What does cage-free mean? What does grass-fed mean? Does that really mean that these cows are having amazing lives? There's so many labels. And I know for myself, I've lost confidence in, um, in in the idea that you know they actually live up to the sort of you know yeah. promise, <laughs> yeah. um, and I know in many ways they don't. Uh, but you're somebody who's really looked at this. So for somebody who is listening to this, like what are the labels they really need to to pay attention to, and what should they know about like truth versus fiction when it comes to these? Yeah. things? Yeah. Well, and you alluded to some of our litigation. I mean, we did litigate. Um, against a lot of what we called organic cheater brands in the personal care space. That, right, like, the, yeah, because yeah. that it'd been so commodified and watered down. That yeah, and it was meaningless. Mean anymore. You yeah. could buy your way into it, essentially. Totally. Um, so the more, uh, I would say, meaningful certifications, well, first and foremost is regenerative organic certified. It's not yet in the market. We're mm -hmm. in our pilot phase this year. But if you go to re regenorganic.com, um, you can kind of learn more about what the standard is. Um, Do they have a list of products there that adhere to that well, standard? Well, unfortunately there's none not at this point okay. in the market, but you can get on the mailing list. And uh -huh. and, and then, um, but what we did with Regen Organic is take, okay, the, what are the top animal welfare pasture-based standards? So that would be your GAP4, so Global Animal Partnership, that's got that ranking in Whole Foods. 
So one, two, right. three are pretty m not super meaningful, but at gap four, that's when it gets pretty meaningful. Uh -huh. So for, if you are gonna choose the meat or, or dairy, um, look for gap four or, or above. Um, and then animal welfare approved is, is pretty much the highest animal welfare certification. Um, certified humane pasture, certified humane in and of itself is a little not as strong, but if, it, if there's a pasture claim, with certified humane certification, that's pretty meaningful. Um, on the fair labor side, um, fair for life, that's our certifier. Um, we're, we believe that's got a lot fair of integrity. Yeah, mm -hmm. fair for life. Um, and you know, there's other- fair That ensures labors. fair wages, adequate working conditions. Yeah, gender equity. And, okay. and um, uh, 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 we actually pay a, into a fair trade fund on materials and labor that helps with community de development projects. So sanit sanitation, like clean water wells or school books for kids or yeah. defibrillator for the hospital. And so, the, so fair trade certification is good. And um, I mean, the big, the big one here is fair trade USA and I have my issues there, but you know, there's a lot of really good products and brands uh, certified by them. And then on soil health, um, you know, obviously biodynamic and Demeter is really good. And organic, USD organic, I mean, you just gotta know your brand. Yeah. You know, there's a big spectrum in there. Um, and that's what we're hoping to do with regenerative organic. It's just really, here's your single trustworthy seal mm -hmm. that on all these ones you can just trust. And what are the, what are the barriers that you're facing in terms of just adoption? Um, well, it's gonna be obviously consumer education um, and breaking through all the noise. Um, but we have partners like Patagonia and I think, um, We've got a good list roster of brands. Um, and I think ultimately you gotta kind of do your research on a given brand. Uh -huh. But um, you know, like the Gua like Guayaquil is a big ally for us and they, they do the Yerba, Yerba Mate. Mate. Yeah. And you know, and that's like do do you research them? You're like, wow, this couldn't be more awesome, you know, and they're uh -huh. they're helping preserve rainforest and supporting the Guayaquil tribe and um and that that yeah. certification could apply to cotton garments and the like, right? Yeah, and so Patagonia's um, got some pretty good stuff. Um, you know, they're similar in that they've got, you know, certified cotton, certified rubber for their wetsuits. Um, uh -huh. they're, they're doing some really deep work into their supply chains. Um, and I think that's part of what is, is knowing the brands and, and you can see in our pilot, like we do have Guayaquil and Numi and uh -huh. some really, good brands that are really going that extra mile. And I would say that, yeah, certification is um, is um, is good to look for, but ultimately you need to do your research on the brand and yeah. just figure out, you know, really get a feel for them. Right. And like, how committed are they? Like, is it, okay, they got like uh, one or two fair trade products, but the rest of their portfolio or product or brand portfolio is like mm -hmm. weak. Um, versus complete commitment. You know? How do you know when you're looking at these products and trying to evaluate them when you're getting fucked with? Because I'm sure there's a lot of marketing doublespeak and obfuscation, you know, yeah. trying to make people think that they're buying something that is oh, yeah, man. You know, environmentally, um, you know, comports with all the things you're talking about, but doesn't actually. Yeah, I mean, reading an ingredient decks um, is, is key and, you know, simple, language you can pronounce on a cosmetic, obviously. If you can't pronounce it, it probably doesn't yeah. belong on your skin. Um, 
And, uh, you know, obviously that'll contradict whatever green claims are being made. If you're like, uh, what's this seven syllable chemical name, uh -huh. you know? And it's like, well, yeah, that's, that's a big flag. <laughs> probably yeah. yeah. Well, I think there's this sense that, that if you're buying something at the store, that it must be fine. You right. know, um, I'm friends with uh, this woman, Greg Renfrew, who has a company called Beauty Counter. She created this, basically this gigantic company, uh, cosmetics company, initially for women um, with beauty products that are all like legitimately all natural without all the chemicals, yeah. because she was horrified to discover that all these products that she thought were natural, you know, quote unquote natural really weren't. Yeah, no, there's no regular- Because yeah. you just think like, well, it must be okay. I got it at the nice, at the Sephora or whatever. Right. And you realize like, yeah, it's very far from the case. Oh yeah, and there's no regulations. The onus is on you as the consumer to really be educated about these things. Yeah, it's buyer beware basically and, and that, but yeah, reading an ingredient deck, if you, you know, it should look like a food, like you're you're putting food on your skin and if it reads different, then that's, yeah. that's the a biggest, problem. The biggest organ on your body, man. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So what's your favorite use of, of your product other than as, you know, a typical soap? Well, like well, of, of all the uses. Well, firefighting foam. Well, yeah, blasting foam and people's <laughs> So what faces. do I have to do to get the foam truck to come to my house? Oh, no, well, next time we're around, we'll just come yeah. by and do it. All right. Yeah, no, throw a really big party. Okay, and, good. <laughs> cool, man. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, next time you have some big initiative or some something going on, come back and talk to me, man. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, right on. Thank you for having me and this has been awesome. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate what you're doing. And I think it, it's proof that you can run a company with this higher sense of purpose and this call to service uh, and do it in a financially, not just viable way, but in a profitable way. The, the, the manner in which you have grown this company to prominence is, I mean, they should be teaching this at Harvard Business School. It's incredible what you guys have built and you've done it on principle with integrity and that's to be commended. And I hope more companies out there can model their DNA off you know, what you guys have established and created. Yeah, right on. Thank you. And yeah, and there are other companies that have inspired us, you know, like the Guai Keys of the world. Uh -huh. And yeah, and hopefully it's a virtuous cycle and others will in turn be inspired. Yeah, so, man. Yeah. It's the all one vision, brother. Bam. Unity right of on. love. Yeah, all right, man. man. Peace. Peace. Let's. Bam. That David Bronner is a trip, isn't he? Hope you enjoyed that journey down the spiritual, psychedelic, and organic rabbit hole. If you want to learn more about Dr. Bronner's soap, go to drbronner.com, drbronner.com. You can hit David up on Twitter or Instagram at drbronner. And I wanted to make a quick announcement about this really cool documentary that these guys just created. It's called Journey to Pavatramenth. I think that's how you say it. And it's this beautiful look at organic regenerative farming practices in rural India, the farms that actually supply Dr. Bronner with the organic mint oil that they use in their peppermint soaps. It's all about soil fertility. It's about climate change. Uh, I really implore everybody to check it out. And you can find it at drbronner.com forward slash journey.
Quick announcement that there's still time to take advantage of our sale on our Plant Power Meal Planner, $20 off an annual subscription when you use the code POWER20 at checkout through April 13. When you sign up at meals.richroll.com, you'll get access to thousands of nutritious, easy-to-prepare, totally customized plant-based recipes. You get unlimited grocery lists. You get grocery delivery in most metropolitan areas. And you get access to a team of expert nutrition coaches on the ready seven days a week to answer all of your questions. To learn more and to sign up, go to meals.richroll.com or click on Meal Planner on the top menu on my website. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, there are a couple simple ways to do just that. Just tell your friends about it when you're at a dinner party or just across the breakfast table. Uh, Take a screen grab of the episode you're listening to, share it on social media. I love that. Tag me so I can share it myself. Uh, Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, on Spotify, wherever you listen to your fine podcast content. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today, Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music, Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for their magic, creating the video version of the podcast and editing it for YouTube, Jessica Miranda for her beautiful graphics, DK, David Kahn, my man, hashtag DK goals for advertiser relationships and theme music as always by Analemma. Thank you for the love, you guys. I don't take your attention for granted. I really appreciate your listenership. And I'll see you back here in a couple days with an amazing conversation with Kevin Smith. Yes, that Kevin Smith, the silent Bob guy, the clerks guy, the mall rats guy, that Kevin Smith is stopping by to share his transformation experience in the wake of suffering a near fatal heart attack. It's an amazing story. You're not going to want to miss it. Until then, remember, we are all one. Unity, people. Peace, plants, namaste.